I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we have a very special episode where we're interviewing Rachel Kadish today with Tova Mervis. So welcome, guys. We're very excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. So, Kendra, you want to kind of explain, like, how we got to, like, why we asked both of them to be on the podcast today? Yeah. So we have never done a dual uh, author interview before, but we, I read it in an article in, I believe, Blossom Globe about their writing group and how they were friends and that they were writing these books and they came out from the same publisher on the same time. And it just seemed, um, and I just thought it'd be great to talk about both of their books and we could have a little chat about what it's like to be in a writing group and have that kind of um, back and forth with creativity and things. So here we are. We'll just jump right into the question since we have a lot we want to talk about and we're talking about two books today. Um, so if each of you could kind of just uh, tell us about your books um, and like what the titles are and kind of what they're about and how you would describe them. Uh, sure. Um, Tava, should I start? Do you want sure. to start? So uh, my novel is called The Weight of Ink. And um, I tend to start writing when something is bothering me and I don't exactly know what it is. Um, or what I think about it. And some years ago, one of the things that was really bothering me was this question that was actually originally posed by uh, Olive Schreiner, but more famously posed by Virginia Woolf. And it was this question of what would have happened if William Shakespeare had had an equally talented sister? What would have been her fate, a woman with that kind of capacious intelligence in that time period? And Woolf's answer is pretty succinct. She died without writing a word. And uh, you can't argue that that's the most likely fate for a woman of intellect in that time period. But it was just rattling around in my head. It was bothering me because, of course, the question is not just an academic question. We all know stories of women who have been defeated or taken down by the norms of their time or forbidden to, to speak. And I kept thinking, you know, okay, well, what would it have taken for a woman of that kind of mind not to die without writing a word. Um, So um, I kept thinking about it, and I started working with a specific period of 17th century history. And um, what I came up with is this novel that is braided. It it, um, it goes, but it's both contemporary and 17th century and alternating chapters. And the novel begins in contemporary London when these documents are found boarded inside a 17th century staircase. And the letters are signed by an obscure rabbi, but some of what's written is shocking. And um, this historian named Helen Watt is called in to examine the letters. She's a non-Jewish woman with a very complicated passion for Jewish history. And it's not long before she discovers that the rabbi's anonymous scribe was a woman. And uh, so the weight of ink ends up being a mystery that reaches back in time to ask, what would it take for a woman not to be defeated when everything around her is telling her to sit down and mind her manners? And in this case of my book, what it takes is an elaborate deception. So in in 1660s London, that part of the book, a blind rabbi, a Sephardic Jewish Inquisition refugee, has no one to read and write for him until he turns to an orphaned young woman named Esther Velasquez. But as Esther gains access to forbidden books and ideas, she realizes that their questions She's desperate to discuss with outsiders questions that could bring death to her and her household if anyone knew what she was actually writing or to whom she was addressing her letters. But despite the danger, she can't stop because for her to ask questions is to be alive. So what I have is a story of this woman who risked everything in order to write and then a woman 350 years later who finds the papers she left and has to interpret them. Well, The Book of Separation is a memoir that I started writing a few years ago, and it really began as an essay 
I wrote an essay about my experience of having an Orthodox Jewish divorce ceremony and which was just highly scripted ritual that ends a marriage in the religious world that I'd always been part of. And in the essay, I wrote about how, as I followed the, the minute details of the ceremony, I really came to understand that I was leaving not just a marriage, but the religious world that had really shaped me. And the essay was published in the New York Times, and it became widely shared. And you know, for me, it was an experience of taking this story that had been my private, painful reckoning and making it public. And although I had written three novels before this, it was really the first time that I had written memoir. And I was very nervous about writing it. I actually happened to be in a remote part of Costa Rica when the essay came out. And if I've learned one thing as a writer, being in a rainforest away from any kind of internet access is really the best place to be when you put your most private story out into the world. And I sort of hid for a few days and you know, we had to really reckon with what it meant to tell a story that made me feel immensely vulnerable. And then when I got home, I saw that my inbox was flooded with emails. There were some from family and friends, but really mostly from strangers. And I had emails from people who'd read the essay men and women, old and young, from all religious backgrounds, who wanted to share their stories with me. And they were stories of leaving a marriage or stories of leaving a religion or really undergoing any kind of painful transformation. And I think it was really the most moving experience I've had as a writer. And I had been so nervous to put this out in the world, but it reminded me what I love about writing and about reading, that when you're honest about a story and willing to be vulnerable, it allows other people to connect and be honest and share their stories. And so I'd been toying with the idea of writing a memoir. I wasn't sure I had the stomach for it. But this experience made me realize that, that I really did want to write, write this story, a larger version of this story as a memoir. And so the Book of Separation chronicles my leaving the Orthodox Jewish world that I was raised inside of and, and shaped me, um, that I was part of as a married woman with three children, and my decision to leave that world and to pursue a way of living that felt more genuine to who I really was. And so it's a story about leave-taking and transformation and, and how you become your own person when you stop following the rules and expectations that have been laid out and try to figure out what it is that you really want to do instead. I thought both of your books were incredibly beautiful. In fact, I read them um, together at the same time. I usually like a nonfiction and a fiction book going at the same time. Um, and I read them both at the same time. And I just, th I mean, they even look like they go together. And I just thought, like, you can, I felt, I know I might be imagining things, but I, as I was reading them, I was like, I think you could tell the authors are friends. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun. it's fun that you should say that. I feel like. I mean, Rachel and I have often laughed about the multiple layers. Not only are we best friends, but I feel like our books could be best friends as well. But <laughs> Rachel, should I out you? Can I out you, Rachel? Yes, go right ahead. <laughs> so in, in my memoir, all names have been changed, of course. But but Rachel is the best friend in my book. And so we had this sort of funny experience oh. where, you know, her name is Ariel in the book. I and, you know, it. One I'm so happy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> down but there was that weird feeling where we were both reading each other's work and then Rachel was in my book and we had the same editor and our books were coming out at the same time it was sort of like multiple layers of reality stacked upon each other at any given time <laughs> that's crazy right and really I think um I mean I, I'm grateful for our friendship on on so so many levels um 
but you know, there, there are these moments where in the end I was cross-eyed with the copy editing and where you just reread a sentence and it just, is this even English? I can't even. <laughs> and there were just moments where I'd just be like, Tova, I'm just, can I just email you these couple of sentences? Will you please tell me if this is in English or not? <laughs> you know, so I think just, um, these books grew up together. Right, exactly. The conversation about them throughout. So I love the idea that you were reading them at the same time. You know, Rachel is always my first reader for anything I write. And so it sort of was this nice feeling of, you know, feeling like I'm just going to write it. I'm going to write it freely. But there's always the first read where you're letting letting a piece of work that has just lived inside you for so long become viewed by someone else. And for me, it was always knowing that that, you know, I always know that Rachel is the one who reads the, for everything first for me. And it just has been such a nice feeling to, to, to know that Rachel's intelligence and exacting eye and her excellent line edits and just her generosity and um really ability to understand what i'm trying to do it's you know I, well the moment when i get rachel's comments back i always feel like okay i can take this piece to the next stage i have i have rachel's comments on it and so it's i think for both of us this experience of not just writing the books together and having a close friendship and spending many years discussing the books and you know, life in general. But I think the fact of them coming out at the same time has just been, has made it so nice to feel that we're doing this sort of together at, at this, you know, we're putting our books out at the world at the same time. <laughs> Absolute mutual, mutual admiration society. And then of course, you know, going out into the world as a woman writer and um, keeping all those balances of, you know, I mean, we, we um, each have kids, um, and are balancing, you know, writing and school meetings and school plays and travel and all of that. And it's just really wonderful to have company. Um, and, and that's one of the things that's been really nice about our writing group also is um, a bunch of working women writers just helping each other uh, avoid pitfalls and um, figure out how to have the writing world together. Yeah. So did you meet in your writing group? Was that where you became friends first or was it the other way around? Like you were friends and then you went to the writing group. We actually met when I moved to Boston, I guess about 14 years ago, I was very upset about leaving New York city, which I loved very much. And I was sort of moping and lamenting the fact that we were going to be moving to, to Newton mass. And I ran into another writer on the streets of New York who Rachel, Rachel and I both knew. And he said to me, oh, you're going to be fine moving to Newton. You'll, you can become friends with Rachel Kadish. And I was like, oh, I want to become friends with Rachel Kadish. <laughs> and we moved here, and our kids being in the same nursery school. And while I'd like to say we bonded as writers first, I think we bonded because our children had lice at the same time. And um, <laughs> uh, we had very similar hair. And so there was a moment we were, like, sitting in the back seat of one of our cars picking lice or checking each other for lice. So oh we bonded across, across the board. <laughs> Yeah, you know, with our writing group. I think one of the other things that I've loved about our writing group is, is that I think it has given each of us courage in a certain way. I think the, the ability to find your voice and that sense that you can speak in your truest voice. Because you know, to write requires you to be willing to say, you know, can I say this honestly? Can I be ambitious? Can I be bold? Can I put this out in the world? And I think having close friends who are doing the same thing and understanding both. The, the gamble you take when you do it and the struggle and also the urge to, to, to say something, to, you know, to put something out in the world, I think has been another piece besides the lice picking that has been so. <laughs> Every single person who is listening to this podcast right now has just wrapped their head sure. in the last 10 seconds. I definitely <laughs> have. I definitely have. I'm like I know looking I just did. Right now. <laughs> um, you, you both have talked about this a little bit. Um, 
but you know, your books, both of your books, like one is fiction and one is nonfiction, but they both have strong Jewish female protagonists, like at the center of it. As you worked on these books, would you say that you were inspired by each other's writings or was it mostly just like helping with editing and just commiserating about being a writer? Um, you know, I think that um, each of us has our own thumbprint as a writer. So each of us would have written about what we're writing about no matter what. I don't, I don't think each of us, either of us persuaded or influenced the other to choose this subject matter. But I do think, and Tova, correct me if you think I'm wrong, I think we made it more possible for each other to speak, and we continue to do so. Um, yes, here is what you can say. Yes, go for it. Yes, speak openly. But, but not in a naive way. We, you know what the costs are for speaking out in certain ways, and we can talk about those. And I think it's just been, um, I think we've been inspiring each other um, to be able to write the stories that each of us has in us to write. And I think also the hard work of writing, the sense that it takes so long and it's sitting with it again and again and again. And I know from Rachel, this book took Rachel's novel took a decade. And before I wrote this memoir, I wrote a novel that called visible city that took me 10 years to write. And just the ability to know that someone else understands what it means to sit and sit and sit and sit over so many years until you get it exactly right. And the frustration that comes from, you know, feeling like, well, what did I do today? Well, I sat for six hours and I sort of tilted one scene a little bit so that it read a little more sharply and to know that a novel is made up of so many of those kinds of days. And I think, you know, the inspiration comes from, from being in the same pursuit and having the same passion for the work and the same ability to, to put in the hour, to just sit yourself down until you get it right. Absolutely. I find it very interesting to hear like how both of you write and how both of you work. And I learned a little bit about uh, Tova, about your writing process in your memoir. You talk a little bit about that. And I found that was very interesting, just like layer the things on top of each other. So I guess now that we've talked a little bit about how you guys work together as friends and in your writing, um, we'll do a couple of uh, questions focusing on each of the books. So I think we're going to start with Rachel and The Weight of Ink. I loved, I love this book. I I love the premise, especially since, you know, obviously a Virginia Woolf fan, you say A Room of One's Own, it's probably my favorite nonfiction book. So I'm, I'm here. I am here for this. Um, and also Helen is one of my new favorite characters of all time. Like <laughs> the fact that she, you know, you don't hear a lot of stories about older women doing amazing things, you know, um, and she, she definitely is. So um, the first question that I have um, is about Esther, though, who's about in the historical part of your novel and uh, so she as you said is gonna is a scribe for a prominent rabbi and she discovers the world of books and learning as she you know learns and different things her entire desire in life is essentially what Virginia says she wants a room of his own she wants the freedom to be able to study and to correspond with other scholars and to find her own beliefs and just kind of like the scholarly solitude that mm -hmm. she's always seeking throughout the entire book so what, what would you say that Esther's story tells us about those who are brave enough to speak up in society um, that are trying to silence them? And, and what did you learn about that topic as you were researching the book? Because I know you researched the book a lot. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, I think, first of all, the process of researching and writing was wholly improvisational the, the entire time. Um, 
somebody said to me at one point, well, how long did you research before you started writing the book? And I, I couldn't answer the question because that's not how it worked. To me, the idea of doing all the research before writing would be like saying, I'm going to swim a mile by first doing all the breathing and then all the swimming. It just wouldn't, wouldn't work. Because how do I know what I need to research until I get into a scene and see what the characters need? And how can I figure out who the characters are until I know what the constraints were on them, how, what their health was like, how hard they had to struggle to find food or candles for nighttime reading. So it was very improvisational. And I really wrote the stories, the two threads of the story in conversation with each other. I did figure out the 17th century and then the contemporary or the other way around. I would literally, I wrote it in the order in which it appears. So Helen would find something unusual on the document. I think, oh, I don't know what this is about. Let me go to the 17th century and see what was actually happening. And then I'd write that scene until I didn't know what would come next. And then I would have Helen discover something else. So I really pieced it together that way. Um, as I went through Esther's story, it really, um, I was struck both about how much more difficult women's lives were then on every level um, and, you know, materially and getting education and all of that. And also um, about how much is still true about how hard it can be to speak out um, against, and maybe this is a, a, another real point of connection from my book with Tovas, how hard it is to speak out when you're the only voice doing it, when it um, mm -hmm. it's dangerous either personally, physically, or socially to do so, the kind of bravery it takes. And it's easy to say, well, you know, women should speak out, people should speak out, but there's always a price to the ticket. And um, I would be writing a, a falsely feminist story if I said, you know, and she got to have everything and everything was perfect. You know, you have to really think about what's the price of, a ticket, of the ticket. What does it cost women to speak out? And I, I loved following Esther and also Helen. I really, I miss both those characters now that I'm done writing them. Well, I loved both of those characters. And, you know, I think... I think your story really resonates with the mission of what we're trying to do here because I've, I have encountered some people who are like, oh, well, we all know women write books. But I read an article a couple months ago about someone said, well, why are there no prominent female painters? And, you know, a similar kind of question. And the answer was, well, it's not that they didn't exist. It was just that they didn't get the the press and they didn't get the notoriety that the male writers got or the male painters got at the time. So all of those kinds of stories like really resonate with me in that way. And I'm always glad to see when, when people point out that yes, you know, women have not just been like writing and thinking and studying in the last hundred years, they've been doing it for a while, but no one's just ever talked about it. And if I, if I can just get on my soapbox about that for one more second, go right ahead. <laughs> press. It's that, I mean, people, um, I think, so often say, well, there weren't any women doing this. And I feel like, how do we know? Because right. if it was dangerous for a woman, or for that matter, a member of any other suppressed minority group, to speak out, they would do it if they succeeded to do it. If they overcame all the odds of education and other things and really were persistent about it, which you know some people were because people are stubborn like that, because people do what the grass does and they grow up and they break through pavement when they can. Most of them don't succeed, but some of them do. And let's say those who did succeed, how are they going to do it? They have to disguise themselves. For a woman to do what Esther does in the book, she pretty much had to write under a man's name. So if she succeeded, how would we know? If she succeeded, it's because she did it well. She disguised herself. So how do we know? that there weren't women doing this. I really, um, 
I bristle when people say, well, clearly there weren't women doing it because it, you just have to think, what did it take to do it? You had to be well disguised. Absolutely. And I think you point that out very well in the book when they're first finding and going through Esther's letters um, in, I guess, I guess would be the book's present or whatever. But um, that one of the scholars is like, well, likely, you know, she was just a scribe. She had no real thoughts of her own, blah, blah, blah. And like, you could, uh, I mean, that's probably what would happen if a similar situation arose. Like people just like automatically have this bias against a woman actually being a scholar. And so I really appreciate that story. I was just cheering. I was cheering for Helen and for Esther and just, you know, female scholarship in general, because it's just beautiful. I love, it was like an Indiana Jones story, but nerdier and <laughs> about like philosophy. Yeah. I, I'm going to quote that. I think that's, I, I just, I feel anytime that you said that. <laughs> that's how I keep pitching it to people. I was like, it's like an academic Indiana Jones. Only Indiana Jones is like a woman in her sixties. <laughs> oh my God. You just made Helen cool. I'm so excited. <laughs> well, you made Helen cool. We're just reiterating what you already did. Well, I think we're going to switch now so we have enough time to talk, um, Tova, about your book. Well, your book is a memoir, and it kind of follows your journey through, as you mentioned, through your divorce and leaving your Orthodox community. And in your story, you mentioned that most of your friends who also left the Orthodox community did so in college, but you didn't seem to start you know, your journey and considering leaving until later in adulthood. Um, So could you Talk a little bit about like the importance of writing stories that open the conversation about those types of life changes and, you know, doubting one's faith can happen at any age. Sure. Late doubt was a phrase that I thought about a lot as I wrote the book. I was raised with this idea that you were supposed to know who you were at a very young age. I grew up in a religious community where sort of the, the steps ahead seemed mapped out. You were supposed to go to high school and then college and get married and have children. Everything was sort of planned out. And I had this idea that the person I was when I was 21 or 22 was who I was. And I would, I would always be this person. I was sort of this one dimensional notion to how I imagined my life moving forward. And I think what really struck me was that we are never the person we are always going to be, that we are always sort of becoming ourselves. And if you live in a world where you allow yourself to grow or change, that person that you are does not remain the person you become. And for me, this presented lots of problems because I was inside a marriage and a strict religious community where I felt that there was only one way you could be. There was this notion of the good girl, and I spent a lot of my life trying to be her and trying to make myself stay her, even when I knew I didn't didn't really believe in the world I was living but I, I didn't really know what to do about that problem of what if you don't match the life you're living. And one of the things that I've learned is that those doubts don't really disappear. I think I, I hope that I could sort of tuck them aside or if I didn't think too much about things that bothered me about my marriage, or about my religious community, I thought somehow I could make it through to the other end. I could somehow make it through unscathed. And I think one of the things I've learned maybe most of all is that no one makes it through unscathed, that sooner or later we have to face those questions about who we really are and what we really want. 
And for me, as I approached the age of 40, I felt this renewed sense of religious doubt. And ultimately, those questions became too strong to ignore. And one of the things I really had to to realize and ask myself and really challenge myself on was this notion that the person we once wa- the person I once was was the person I would always be. I had to accept the idea that it was possible to change. And for so long, I think my mantra was nothing can change. It seemed impossible. And I think the most liberating and maybe also the hardest part of leaving this marriage in these worlds was recognizing that change comes at a price. You know, change can be scary and painful even when it's necessary. And so I made a change. I always feel like I was a late bloomer in terms of change. It took me, you know, right before I turned 40 was when I was willing to upend my world. And in so many ways, I think that the book of separation is really about a midlife coming of age. It's sort of a belated coming of age story. And I think we don't all come of age in our early 20s. And maybe we don't only come of age just once. I think that we can be always in this process of coming of age again and again as we encounter new experiences and allow ourselves to grow in new ways. I really, I really love that. I've read a lot of um, books where people leave their faith, but you showed such an incredible amount of emotional maturity. And I especially loved how, you know, when your son, um, you know, like when he wanted, uh, to keep the Sabbath, you know, you helped him as much as possible, even though that wasn't something that you wanted to do for yourself anymore. And it was just, it was really beautiful. Thank you. One of the things I've learned, I think, as a daughter and as a mother is that we don't get to control who our children are. We, we birth them and we raise them, but ultimately they are their own people. And I think one of the things I really wanted to explore in the memoir was how do we allow ourselves to become who we really are? And, and how do we allow the people around us to become who they want to be? And, you know, I certainly had that experience with my own children where my oldest son really felt an affinity for Orthodox Judaism. And, and I wanted to honor that. I wanted the same way that I wanted permission to leave or wanted to give myself permission to leave. I wanted to enable him to stay and wanted to enable him to grow and explore and he'll have many layers and many years of, of grappling and deciding who he wants to be. But I felt like part of being a parent is recognizing that our children, that we, that we don't own other people's beliefs, that we don't get to dictate what, you know, the contents of someone's soul or the, their passions or their beliefs that, that we're each in charge of that ourselves. And I think what was so hard for me in leaving was that I felt like it, there was a preordained sense of who I was supposed to be. And if I didn't believe in what I was supposed to believe in, I felt like I was a bad person. And I think recognizing that belief is a subjective experience and we, we are entitled to choose for ourselves the way we want to live. And I think it's true, not just of ourselves as adults, but for children increasingly as they, as they start to grow up to give them room to, to make those, those crucial decisions and explore belief for themselves. And so I think that is always, you know, it's complicated. It's certainly never simple in our family where people believe different things and we observe um, Judaism in different ways or don't observe. And there's always sort of a navigation of figuring out how do you keep people connected when they believe differently. I was never wanted to sacrifice a sense of emotional closeness or connection, but really to ask again and again, how can I connect with, with family members who believe differently? How can I still 
keep the love in place even when there are these variances in belief. I think that's very, very well put. And that actually is a perfect segue to another question that I had um, as I was reading your book. I am a Christian and so I'm a very, I'm a religious individual. And so as a person of faith, I like reading books of all faiths. And I always see there's kind of this dichotomy where people think you either are a, you know, more conservatively strict practicing religious individual or you're an atheist. There really is no land in between, which obviously is not true. Um, So at the end of your book, you come to a place on your own terms. You're no longer part of your orthodox community, but you neither seem to have, you know, embraced atheism. So I just want to know from your perspective, so why do you think when we see, you know, faith portrayed in books, that characters often are uh, one of the two extremes. Why aren't there more characters in the middle or people in the middle? Just your thoughts on that part of faith and writing and different things. I mean, I think, you know, having been part of a religious community for so long, I you know, was always struck by how people assume they knew exactly what I believe based on the label about me. You know, people would say, oh, well, she's orthodox. And that meant certain things about me. And I think that it's always more complicated. I think maybe one of my favorite reviews I've ever gotten was about my second book, which was about uh, the Orthodox Jewish world and people, different experiences within it. And one of the early reviews said that I make gefilte fish out of stereotypes of Orthodox Jews. And I was like, I think that's a good thing to make gefilte fish out of <laughs> positive. But, but that idea that, you know, outwardly people might dress the same or might observe the same or wear the same labels, but everyone's experience of religious communities and religious belief varies like any other experience. I think that there's no one experience of faith or one experience of being part of religious community. And I think writing fiction and, and nonfiction as well is the place where you give voice to all those varieties of experience. And so I want to, you know, in my fiction story, I was always interested in saying, well, what goes on inside people's heads? I'm interested always in that gap between how we present ourselves or how people perceive us and our inner world. And certainly for me, that, that inner terrain was where I lived for so long, where I was aware that my private world didn't match my public world. I think that it's, you know, few things are black and white. Few people are you know, always religious or always not religious. Or I think that we live in those shades of gray. And I think certainly for me and my experience of leaving orthodoxy, you know, I would in no way define myself as orthodox. And yet when you're raised in something, when it's shaped every memory and every experience, can I really say that I'm not, I'm not this at all. I'm, I'm still shaped by it. And I think that that ability to to find those places of gray, I think, allow us to connect to people who are not exactly like us, to say, yes, I'm not this, but but I know it so well, or I'm not this, but I understand what it feels like to be this. I understand the pull. And you know, one of the things that was really important to me in writing the book of separation was I wanted to explore not just what drove me away from it, not just what made me not want to be a part of it, but what made me want to belong to it for so long? I wanted to look at what keeps what keeps people inside a religious world. What is the value? What is the benefit for our lives? What what are those ways that we feel a sense of belonging or purpose? And I think those are the losses. Certainly, you know, leaving that kind of community, I'm well aware that. We never just leave and sort of walk out into the big, open, broad world without looking back. It's always more complicated and painful. And I think one of the things that I found was there was a trade-off between freedom and loneliness. And I think in leaving religious worlds, there's that 
sense that you, you lose something and we're always gaining and losing in every decision we make. But I think, you know, I feel like so much of our national conversation everywhere is always viewed in these black and white terms. And I think anywhere that we can be reminded of those shades of gray or when we can have the actual, the real conversations. I think that's so true. And I actually think that both of your books kind of show, you know, what people are like behind perceptions and things like that. But um, we're going to shift gears here a little bit, but we wish we, I mean, listening to both of you talk, like I really wish we had more time to talk about both books and the nuances in them and all of that. Um, Cause there's just so much here and they're, both of your books are just so rich and we, Kendra and I really enjoyed reading them and we were been texting each other about them while we've been reading them constantly. Um, so <laughs> Did you get to this part yet? No, no spoilers. Yeah, we've spoiled books for each other before, so we always ask now. Um, Anyway, hopefully to our listeners, this piques your interest and get, you know, so that way you'll be interested in reading these books. Because Kendra and I I just want to reiterate that Kendra and I both really, really enjoy these books, which leads me to my last question, which is what are some of the books that both of you all have been reading recently, or what are some books that have really been watershed books in your writing lives? That's always a fun question, but also a little anxiety provoking. Yes, us too. Don't worry. So so I think the main thing that I am reading and rereading now is uh, anything by James Baldwin. I'm finding that right now there's something about the capacity of his ability, both in fiction and in nonfiction, to look at the world around him and be so brutally but also tenderly honest about all of it. I'm finding it very helpful in these very roiled times that we're living in. Um, So Baldwin, 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 and uh, I just um, finished um, The Fire next time. You know, I think when I talk about this book, uh, when I talk about The Weight of Ink, I have to also tip a hat to A.S. Byatt's Possession, which I read and reread many years ago, but was very inspiring to me um, and was something I had in mind when I started writing this book. A.S. Byatt has been on my list and I haven't gotten to Possession yet. It's on my bookshelf. I can see it. So maybe I'll move it up my list. (laughs) You know, when I was writing the book of separation, I decided that I was going to read primarily memoir. In general, I'm a fiction reader, but I wanted to really immerse myself in memoir as I was writing. I felt like I wanted to really teach myself what felt like a new way of writing and really wanted to ask, you know, as I read each book, you know, what can I learn from each of these books? And there were many memoirs I loved. Um, you know, I read memoirs of leaving religions, memoirs of divorce, memoirs of great adventures, memoirs of addiction, and sort of just read my way through them and kept a notebook as I read. And, you know, some that come to mind that I really loved, um, I love Rachel Cusk. I loved Aftermath was one of those books that just felt so brutally honest and raw that I would, you know, find myself reading it again and again. And it was sort of, even in its brutality, it had this comforting feel, feel to me, just that someone was saying it like it was. I also loved Danny Shapiro and I, and her book, her memoir devotion was something I read many times, um, as I was writing my book and just, you know, recently having finally finished the book of separation, I'm returning to fiction, which has been an exciting experience to sort of feel like, Oh, there's so many novels I haven't read. And this, you know, re- return to fiction. And and I guess just off the top of my head, the last few um, novels I've read are, um, I just read 
then woman number 17 by Eden Lepaki. I might be mispronouncing her name, which I really loved. Um, I love, um, the book by our fellow writing group member, Jessica Shattuck, woman in the castle, which I really just sort of devoured and couldn't stop reading. And I just recently finished reading here comes the sun by Nicole Dennis beams, which I also just love. Yeah. Those are, those are some great picks. Yeah, I, uh, a friend of our friend of ours reviewed um, Jessica's book earlier this year for us, so um, that was really cool. And I was like, "How are these guys all in the same writing group?" Right. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've had a great, a great writing group. Really. I know you, you must had so many parties in your writing group for all the books out this year. It's right. It's been quite a party of a year. It really has been. And I just want to say, jump into Jessica's book is wonderful. I really, really wonderful. And you know, I'm I'm the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, and for me to to read, you know, a novel by uh, someone who's a granddaughter of people who are members of the Nazi party about that history. It's just so moving, so powerful. She does such a beautiful job with it. You had an excellent interview, um, like a conversation type interview with her. I can't remember where it was, but I will go find it and I'll link it in the show notes. You told you mentioned you were going back to fiction now. So that does make me wonder, can you guys tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Or do you not want to jinx it? I know some authors, you know, they don't like to mentioned too much about something until it's just about done. I'm sort of slowly, I'm slowly creeping up towards fiction. I'm sort of afraid to return to it. I think the experience of my 10 year novel, Visible City has made me a little um, skittish, but the idea of saying I'm writing another novel, but, but I am going to. And so I'm sort of slowly um, accumulating ideas, mostly just in a notebook that I keep losing every time I write something down in it. But I'm, I'm in that stage of just sort of sitting with a few ideas and beginning to think about it. I spent most of the past few months writing a bunch of essays. And so um, I'm sort of done with that right now and going to kind of let my mind return to the, really the pleasure of invention and, and creating a world that is not my own. And it's exciting to start. It's daunting, but also there is a freedom that I feel about the idea of, you know, I can just make it up. You know, the memoir was always, well, what happened and what really happened and who said what? <laughs> Do whatever I want in this new world. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, I think um, I'm um, I'm writing some essays. Uh, but I have an idea for a novel, but I, I am going to be superstitious about it and not say much more. <laughs> I was, think if this works out, it will require a lot less research than The Weight of Ink. So that feels kind of zero gravity and fun. <laughs> Both of those sound really exciting, and we will absolutely be looking for any future books and or essays to pop up and we'll be eagerly waiting to read them. And so I think we've come to the end of the show. So we'd like to thank so much um, Rachel Kadish and Tova Mervis for coming and joining us today. And you can find, again, Tova's book is The Book of Separation, and then Rachel's book is The Weight of Ink. And you can find out more about their other books and more about them and their writing and what they're doing on their websites. And that would be rachelkadish.com and then tovamervis.com. And of course, we will have links to all of these in our show notes so you can easily find them. And per always, you can find me, Autumn Privet, and Kendra Winchester in all the usual places. And we want to thank you all so much for listening to the Reading Women podcast. And again, thank our special guests for joining us today. We really enjoyed having you. Oh, thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. Great. Bye, guys. Storybound is a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by unique and award-winning composers with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. 
With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet sweet, or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the Podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio. Hi, I'm So Pandep. Hi, I'm Megan Angelo. This is Tommy Orange. This is Amanda Stern. This is Phil Cly. Hello, this is Stephanie Dandler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound. This is Storybound. 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 This is the Storybound Podcast. Season 2 will be arriving on July 14th, with new episodes every Tuesday, featuring writers like Stephanie Dandler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.